Is this working? Hello, Richard. Hello, Laurie. How are you? Yeah, yeah, that's always a win. All right. <laughs> yeah, I doubt he'd show. He's gone very quiet on uh, on Twitter. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I do it a lot. Uh, I don't know, do they do organic? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I've got a choice. It's either go out with neurological or, uh, and I don't want that, so. <laughs> I take plenty. I'll try to. I'll try to keep the. I'll stop vaping if you want the interview. No, I haven't actually. Um, I'm. I might be going out on Twitch, but um, I didn't set up any any. Um, like I. I can set up Rumble as well to go. Just give me a couple of seconds, and then I'll tell everyone we're live. Um, Yeah. Uh, white white widow. I'm sure. Uh, I was just saying, yeah, white widow always works. <laughs> it's a. Uh, uh, Hang on, I've just I've got a couple more steps to do to um set up rumble. Just rumble is finicky. I wish I could just hit the button and go, but it doesn't do that. Uh yeah, it's a new feature that they have right now. It's actually uh, a godsend because of just how restrictive YouTube has become, and yeah, yeah, I've I've burned through so many accounts there, and it's a it's a nightmare. Uh, 
FEMA configuration. How are you, Richard? How's the uh, discussions going with? Um, busy. busy? We're, 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 uh, yeah, yeah, we, we so, so the way we're, we're, we're doing, doing this, this are, are, are you, are you recording, recording now? now or live? live uh, now? Yeah. If you want to just be somewhat circumspect. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we, we are, are um, um, we have, we have several, several people, people that we're working, working with, with and, and there are, are two appointments that I have set up, set up next week, week um, with one particular individual, individual who is uh, capable, capable of bringing a grand jury indictment. <clears throat> and we're and taking uh, all the documents, so that those documents will include uh, everybody's affidavit and, and supporting documents. So, so right now, now we, we probably have... <clears throat> Not everything has been yet, yet, yet but, but 8,600 8, items, items that are available. available. And, and the affidavit and presentation, though, depending upon who's, who's looking at it, what point in time, time they can either listen to us, talk about things, things read the affidavit, have, have the other material, cover cover letter, or a couple pages on, just explaining things. And so, you know, this was one forty one, and it just takes... It takes, it takes a long, a long period, period of time, time you know, you know, as, as, you know, you know I mean, probably you better than anybody, anybody else that I'm that connected, connected with because of the science background. background. No, it, no, takes, it takes a while to investigate, to investigate something, something, to get, to get your track straight, straight to, to revalidate and re-verify items, items and, and, and get them correctly. And then from a legal perspective, there is a way in which do this. You know, the comedy joke in law College, college was, was you know everybody, everybody when they would have the question, question can you can sue, you sue for, that? for that professors, professors would always laugh of course course sue for it whether whether it's going to go anywhere i mean anybody but if i allow a claim claim so the goal is to realize that we're talking to people of two persuasions one group of people that want to do something about it but don't have the knowledge base, base to, do to do it, it and they and don't, they don't want, want they don't want to end their, their career and or, or something, something else <clears> as a result of doing it. So they need this type, type of information, information to do it. Right. And right. then there's and the there's other group that, that would just assume that, that, that you know, you know, I drop dead and possibly some of the rest of you, but I'm sure they really like to meet me all over. My house got struck by lightning two days ago. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Are you okay? Well, I mean, it, it's blown. A, I think it hit the carport outside, so all that wiring seems fried. So I've got to go out and uh, fix that. But I'm going to try and make it a job with my youngster. I'm keeping him at home right now, so yeah, he, he can watch. Has Daniel. that ever happened before? No, no, no. And um, yeah, it was it was a literal bolt out the blue. Everything, you know, I'm I was sitting here where I am right now at the computer and. You know, it was so close to like the the room just flashed completely blue, and then you just hear mm -hmm. everything go was it as everything yeah, just yeah, shut down. Yeah, and, yeah. and then of course wow. there was, there I had was... to go on. Oh, you no, had to read read everything. Yeah, it was it was a case of sort of having to isolate what was blown. So you know you. A couple of fuses are gone, and then there was just one that would just—it um, was completely fried. So, and that was—that's the one that was outside. So, 
it is uh, it is what it is um i'm hoping though that that's all the all the drama that we're going to have to yeah, deal yeah. with um, hopefully, hopefully that, that won't happen, happen again. One of the one places, places that we that lived, we lived in, in Iowa, Iowa got jacked twice. twice. The same 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 home. home. Mm-hmm. Uh, massive massive, massive oak tree in the front yard, yard that got got struck by lightning on two different occasions, and then sparked from, from the tree through the screen into the house, house and took out out everything electronic. Um, and, and, and that'll, that'll get your attention when you see a bottle oh, yeah, yeah. coming from a tree through the screen into your And let me tell you that when they say that electricity does not conduct down, you know, like the curtain thread, you know, you pull the curtains up and down, it does. I guarantee you Wow! Yeah, every, um, everything so, just so, gets electrified in that, and well, it's hundreds of yeah, thousands yeah. of volts, right? That's um, well, well that tree never, never looked, looked the same. same. I mean, well, it, it, it literally, literally shook mass mass tree. The, 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 the ground, ground around, around the roots had been shaking, and the entire tree, and you see the earth, earth, earth uh, lifted up around it. And then it did the second time, and it said, "You know, you know, we're moving." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not. Well, he could have cut the tree uh, down. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, is, that true. is true. So, so Kevin, Kevin, what part, part of Japan, Japan are you in? Uh, so it's a prefecture called Gifu. Um, I'm trying to think what would make it stand out maybe in people's minds. But um, it's it's where the sort of mountains really start in Japan. Um, Over by Sapporo. Uh, Sapporo is quite a way. I'm sorry, I'm north, north. T- towards the south of the country, <clears throat> but north of like the coastline. So there's like a belt of prefectures that run across the south of the country. And then I'm sort of like one prefecture up and like the, the, the middle of Japan is quite empty, actually. And um, I wish I could just get further away into... <laughs> into nature than where i am at the moment but it is uh it is where it's it, it's quite oh, it is, uh, rural it is. where we are it is beautiful, it is beautiful there. there so, so my, my grandmother my, my, my mom is uh japanese, japanese. Um, but my grandmother oh, okay. was full-blooded and she was born, she was born in japan on a little small uh farmland off, off the coast, coast. Mm-hmm. And, and they migrated, migrated here, here um my great great I guess my great grandparents migrated in um, 1894 on a cargo, cargo ship and ended up in Hilo. And, and it's where, where she met she my uh, Filipino, Filipino grandfather. grandfather. So, so we, Jim and I, Jim and I were in Japan, Japan six years ago, seven, seven years, ago. years ago. And so we went, so we, went we made it, we made it through, everything through everything except, except for Sapporo. Sapporo. That was, that he was, wanted us no ski, but we didn't want to pack all the gear, so we never made it. So, mm, so. Mm, hopefully, mm. maybe one day, one day we'll see. We'll see. COVID well, uh, next time you come, give me a shout. And, yeah, uh, yeah, I'll yeah. I'll be sure yeah. to show you around. For um, sure, but, sure. Uh, yeah, all right, all right. Awesome country. So I'm it is, it is. ready when you are. I've put okay, out alerts okay. and an uh, email. So just. Okay, okay. Um, I am people going have probably going been watching to... us already. So. Okay, okay. I'm recording uh, progress. Recording mine. mine. So we'll so go ahead we'll go and get started. Get started. So, so um, um, welcome, welcome to my to podcast, podcast on SARS CoV 2, the virus. virus. Um, um, Kevin, you probably, probably know that the Latin, Latin meaning, meaning of virus, virus is, is a toxin, toxin, a poison, poison a, venom, a venom that can, that can lead, lead to, to disease. disease. And our, and our topic, topic will cover. Will cover 
How is SARS-CoV-2 impacting our brain? And why are we seeing the increases in the neurological diseases in today's world? SARS-CoV-2 has been proven to cross the blood-brain barrier. And we see the impact of the spike proteins on the central nervous system in the brain. There's evidence that has been increasing in multiple studies across the world. Studies on anxiety, studies on depression, Alzheimer's, dementia, and one of the newest diseases that I'm seeing more of, which is sundowner syndrome, which is being diagnosed in our older population. So these studies go from sites like Mental Health Days to the Lancet, to PubMed, and the Seattle Times, which they're just a few of many that I'm seeing. And with, and the, with recent the recent report, report released, released on, on teen, teen suicide, suicide rates, rates, which is, which now, is now at an all-time all high of 30%, 30% I'll, I'll be spending, spending a little bit of time, time talking, talking um, about, that. about that. The reason, the reason that, that I wanted, I wanted to, talk to talk with you both, with you both is because I feel that we need to start addressing this. We need to start educating where people can turn to for help. And, and I have to be, I honest, be honest, most, most of, the of the people that I talk, that I talk to here in the U.S. Really, really don't know where, where to, turn, to turn, let alone, alone who they can, they can trust. trust. So, so I have to I say, have to say uh, I'm, I'm truly blessed, blessed today, today to, to welcome, welcome back, back my friend, friend Dr. Dr. Richard, Richard Fleming. Fleming. Dr. Dr. Fleming, Fleming is an, is MD, an MD, a PhD, a, PhD, a nuclear, nuclear physicist, and an attorney. He is the author of the book, the book is COVID-19 COVID a bioweapon. Bio he, he is also instrumental, instrumental in, leading in leading the fight, the fight to end, end the gain-of-function gain research, research through his grassroots website, 10letters.org, which we will talk more about that later. So, so I, I think, think in, my in my mind that there, that are, there many are many people who understand, understand the relative, the relative causes, causes to the systemic, systemic responses of the, of the disease, disease based, based on its systemic, systemic target, target receptor, receptor, the ACE2 receptor. receptor. And, it's and it's talked, talked about, about quite often. often. The, concentration the concentration of these receptors, receptors are, found are found in the heart, the, hearts, the, lungs, the lungs, the gut, the, gut, the liver, the, liver, the reproductive, reproductive organs, and the vasculature. And we are, and we are seeing, seeing a huge rise in cardiovascular problems. And there are and a lot, of, lot doctors of doctors talking about, about this. this. However, However, one of the, one reasons, of the reasons that I believe that, I believe that, the, that lack the lack of discussion, discussion on, on neurotoxicity, neurotoxicity of SARS-CoV-2 has, has to be because of the complexity of the topic, topic prion, prion disease, and prion, and prion folding. folding. Typical, Typical symptoms, symptoms of prion, of prion disease, disease can be imbalance, imbalance coordination problems, memory loss, loss impaired, impaired thinking, thinking psychiatric, psychiatric problems, problems such as, such as Anxiety, anxiety, depression, depression bipolar, bipolar onset. onset. But, all but all of these brain, brain symptoms, symptoms, which we, which now, we now know are on the rise, rise is the is insanity of these rises, rises that are really, really mind-blowing mind -blowing to, me to me here, here in the United, United States. States. But, but could it could also be, be the case for the rise in suicides? suicides? So, so for today's, for today's talk, talk, for the non-academic non people, people listening, listening Let's, Let's try and try explain, and explain the, answers the answers to these questions, questions so, that so that they understand, understand both, both of your, of your answers. answers. 
it's super, it's super important, important to me, to me that, they that they can, can comprehend, comprehend what, you what you are both, both going, going to, be to be talking, talking about, about in order for them to educate others. But there's a burning question for most of us who have either had COVID the disease or the jab. And that question is, how damaging is it neurologically? And is there a difference between the two? So Dr. McCarran, I'm gonna start with you. And I'll start with you. I know that you're one of the leaders in the world researching the impact of the spike proteins on the central nervous system and the brain. But can you please tell our listeners how you got started in your research on SARS-CoV-2 and neurotoxicity? Oh, it's, uh, well, to, to cut a long story short, I came into contact with SARS um, 2019, December, in the what was the biggest outbreak hotspot in South Korea. And this this was an illness that um, was, and like I say, some people have uh, an easy time with SARS and some people don't. And I had a number of uh, predisposing comorbidities, including um, TBI. And it was, it was my uh, dalliance with the virus which caused a lot of neurological symptoms with myself that i realized this isn't anything um usual it's not flus it's not like a norovirus or anything like that it was long sustained had a long fight to get back to uh normal and this was this happened just as the um, outbreak was sort of being announced in wuhan and we have data now which shows that SARS was probably circulating far, far earlier, maybe in the summer, the September. Um, and so I, could, I couldn't get a proper diagnosis. But as soon as I saw what was happening in Wuhan and what I'd been through personally, I was like, um, I went uh, to the effort of trying to uh, warn people that this isn't uh, just a respiratory pneumonia. This has far more... Um, debilitating uh, disease profile and um, what I what I found personally was and now with hindsight we know that they had uh, in place organized narrative control networks to try to um, contain public the public's uh, the their curiosity I guess about the the disease itself and what what they were actually dealing with and there was a there was a very large effort to suppress anything beyond the orthodox line coming out say from the cdc or european um me medical institutes and it, it was coming up against that initial um censorship that made me, again sort of reinforced my idea because it, it was I was convinced that it came out of a laboratory very early on. I went public with that. Um, I collaborated with a group uh, called Drastic. Uh, we published a paper about um, the synthetic nature of SARS-CoV-2. And, you know, I was I was pushing that it comes out of a lab and it can have debilitating um, a debilitating profile for, again, at the beginning, we didn't know who and how, how many would um, suffer in particular and you know as we got wiser we realized that there was a very 
um, distinct age stratified risk. Um, and what I've been trying to do since then is just inform people about the role of viruses in the formation of these chronic neurodegenerative inflammatory linked diseases that in my opinion come from there's well there's multiple there's multiple peptides in the virus itself but also we've taken the very very bizarre decision to have gene transfect people and have them make the same spike protein that at the amino acid level has the same profile and what we're talking about when we mentioned prions is the ability to misfold and there's there's a, you'll often hear sort of overlapping language with respect to um, something called amyloidosis and the prediction software um, so th this would be what we call in silico studies identified that the spike protein has numerous amyloidogenic epitopes on its structure uh, on its uh, as part of its structure and so we've been sort of aggregating the data with respect to how that's impacting at a clinical level with respect to the disease, but also um, people who have had um, adverse events in response to gene transfection itself. And right now, I'm of the opinion that um, considering the um, prion-like nature of these peptides, that there's too much of a safety signal that we're seeing right now that should preclude their use until we can uh, fully dismiss the the potential that it, it could be causing um, long chronic disease emergence, particularly in the neurodegenerative domain. And we must. Uh, um, the problem is, is that many studies don't have a long enough window to be looking for these types of adverse events. So they'll say, oh, 14, 28 days later, generally people are okay. But what we're seeing in the um, statistical data at an epidemiological level is that we have sustained excess death um, literally across all age groups. But And the primary, uh, primary uh, categories in which this is happening is the dementia categories and Richard can speak better to the cardiovascular but th these signals are there and th they're being classed as non-COVID in these waves of excess death which we're having now which are running generally around 10 to 20 percent above where they should be and it it's my contention that as we've seeded the environment with synthetic um, chimeric amyloidogenic peptides either through viral transmission or through direct gene transfection is probably one of the contributing factors to the death that we see so i hope that wasn't too wordy that, of an intro no but. that was actually good as a follow-up question that to that you mentioned tbi traumatic brain injury do mm. you think that uh spect imaging would be helpful if um, someone did have a traumatic brain injury and got yes, hit with yeah. COVID. Do you think that, what what do you think it would show? I mean, I know that we see things in Lyme and we also, you know, dementia and Alzheimer's for sure. I know that Dr. Raymond mm -hmm. here in, in the United States um, 
is one of the leads in SPECT imaging. He actually has the largest SPECT imaging um, and he's got 12 clinics. I'm actually one of his brain certified health coaches, which is why I know about okay. SPECT imaging. But yeah. what do you think it would show if somebody like you who had a prior TBI and then ended up getting the disease COVID would see? Um, well, there's, there's a lot of factors at play when you when you're doing something like spec. So often, often with TBI, you'll see a reduced spec signal around um, the impact uh, area. Um, the the with respect to a combination of spike protein, SARS-CoV-2, and TBI. I can only imagine, but in my from my own personal perspective, because of the delirium that I I went through, um, I would I would have to imagine it would be quite quite an active spect. So it, it's it would have to be on a patient by patient basis, and you know the the clinician has to look and take through all the variables um one by one and try to figure out what's going on but it's a good question i wish i had a better answer do you um to your knowledge do you know anybody that is doing anything similar yet um well there's there's been quite well there's a su substantial research using just mri of brain pre-COVID, post-COVID, and they find that they do find significant uh, changes in white and gray matter. So just structural changes in the brain after exposure to uh, the virus. Now, um, again, does this uh, cross over to gene transfection itself? I don't think we have good data in that regard. And the problem is that we're, we're caught in a administrative and bureaucratic loop where well literally they weren't doing autopsies and it's been very very difficult to get autopsy data with respect to people especially in the vaccine adverse event cohort now professor Anna Burkhardt in Germany now has a cohort series of about 70 patients and he's been able to identify spike protein so the way that they differentiate assault from the virus versus assault from gene transfection is that with the virus you you'll get a uh, bouquet of sort of peptides released and they look for a couple of those generally the spike protein uh, nuclear protein and envelope protein if it's someone who's been gene transfected you you will just find spike protein but none of the other um, corroborating markers which would indicate that it's the spike protein produced by gene transfection itself and in in this cohort study um, they're finding what are called uh, amyloidogenic um, plaques or buildup particularly around blood vessels uh, but also in the brain parenchyma and also systemically in the vasculature and also in the uh, the heart itself um there's a like i say we're we're still in an evolving situation with respect to um data aggregation and the problem is is that there's a third rail um academically 
should people start writing up data that would indicate that there could be a problem from gene transfection? There are some studies out there. Um, I was reading a review yesterday as a stream uh, from the group that first sort of, well, they were the first to sort of reproducibly in silico and in vitro experiments show that the spike protein had all these amyloidogenic peptides and they make a specific point of warning that um, synthetic spike is likely to have the same side effect profile as the uh, natural infection but again we're unsure about how that's weighted and I would I would say we have to that the bigger picture has to be put into the fact that we have this ex extended all-cause mortality that's running to, again, between 10 to 20 percent, depending on where you look. And um, th there's a there's very, very little discussion as to why that that's happening. And, you know, without unless we get the autopsy data. So we're dependent on people like Professor Burkhart. Um, it, it, May may just be a case that they're able to sweep it under the carpet. I don't know if Richard has something to add about autopsy data. He works closer to that environment than I do, but um, it's a it's a travesty that we don't have this data in such circumstances. Oh, I agree. And you know, one of my questions for you was, um, and I'm hoping that maybe you could ex explain it in simple 101 terms. Is can you explain? amyloid uh, genicity, because we're seeing that more and more, especially in some of the um, like PubMed studies. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's try and think of a, so amyloid, so I, I actually like to use a concrete example, which many, many people know about if you're old enough or have probably read about, which is the, um, in the eighties, in the United Kingdom, there was a wave of what was colloquially termed mad cow disease. And this was a product of, so basically prion disease. There was a consequence of them rendering the n nervous tissue as part of mechanically recovered feed that was given back to the animals. And they were eating this and then developing the neurological problems that um, inflicted the cattle herds of the UK and it was running at, um, several thousand a week at its peak. But what's happening in a condition like um, BSE, bovine spongiform encephalopathy, or human equivalents, uh, Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, or the new variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which emerged as a consequence of mad cow, is that the protein misfolding itself it starts as a sort of, ex it's an exponentially increasing cascade of misfolded protein that essentially you think, you can think of it like Lego bricks. And once that misfolded protein is in the cell, it will be, it will interact with like structures on other proteins and essentially cause them to misfold. They will click together like you would a Lego brick, and then imagine just extending that out, and then you've got some longer pieces, and then you could, you know, sort of build out more complex, convoluted shapes. And that that's what happens at, uh, at a basic level. And what you see is um, a common feature among many of the 
neurodegenerative states. So Kreutzfeldt-Jakob would be at the extreme end. Um, a colleague of mine and Richard's, uh, Luc Montagnier, who passed away, um, actually did a paper where they found that after vaccination, there was a significant uptick in Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease within weeks of people receiving the vaccines themselves. Now, you know, was it tens of thousands of people? No, but it was hundreds of times more than the level that they'd been experiencing prior to the introduction of gene transfection vaccines. Now, has that sustained itself uh, over the, the longer period? Um, again, it, it's difficult unless you have access to the direct data, but there's definitely, you have to think of these disorders as a spectrum, right? So with Kreutzfeldt-Jakob at the very end and being very aggressive, and it will go towards um, the classic dementia disorders that most people are familiar with, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and then modern sort of neuroscience accepts the fact that this spectrum can then tip over into other functional domains in the brain where you, um, once you have issues in those networks, you develop neuropsychiatric disorders. And this is something that I've been trying to talk about for a very long time from the beginning. And the data seems to have panned that out. Um, but the, is it, again, it's, you know, it, there's, there's, these diseases are what we, what we call surreptitious disease. It takes a long time in order for, uh, often for the disease to manifest itself. Right. And so we, we're just at the beginning still. Sadly, you're right. You did a great job explaining, um, Try unfolding. Um, could you just give our listeners just like a what, like beginner's level on um, explaining what prion disease is? Mm, so originally, um, so the first real concrete description was made by a scientist called Prosner. And this was back in the, I want to say, I want to say it was early 80s, might, might have been late 70s, but around that period, they were working on these um, prion proteins and finding out and discovering their, their nature. They found out that they weren't susceptible to normal disinfection mechanisms, autoclaving, chemical, etc., and they could still be infective. And th so th from that, they analyzed that they did have protein material and so they coined the term prion, which is proteinaceous infectious particle. But as, the, as we've become more sophisticated, we've started to learn that there are multiple diseases of protein misfolding. And in the neuroscience domain, we refer to these now as prionergic or prion-like disorders because protein misfolding is, a, is at the heart of these conditions um but you know depending on which which one of your peptides is susceptible will determine which disease pathway that you will eventually um go down and it's not only uh, above the neck um i'm sure richard can explain very much about how the heart is very much at risk of these um amyloid type peptides and you know the simple the simple fact is is that 
what we understand is that there is a, a, a seeding event that occurs. And then even after, you know, that sort of the, the uh, insult has happened, weeks and months later, the process can still be ongoing and, and disease emerge much, much later. So it's hard to make the uh, causal connection to um, something like the vaccine. If you get it through SARS, they're happy to say that it was SARS that um, put you on a neurodegenerative pathway. But there's a um, very, very strong reluctance to say that the vaccine has the same potential mechanisms at play. And I think we need to take both very, very seriously. Okay. As, as a follow-up question to that, you had some really great points. Do you think um, that someone's DNA, which most conventional medicine doctors don't even talk about that, don't even want to test, which I look at it just as a toolbox. It's not like you're, you're treating your SNPs, but do you think that that has anything to do with the impact of when someone does get the disease, either from the injection or from just getting COVID itself, do you think that the DNA, their DNA plays a role in mm, how sick question. that mm. they would get? So uh, there's, there's a few publications that have come out which show that the spike protein itself and the mRNA is capable of translocating to the nucleus of the cell. Now, you know, what does what does that mean in terms of long-term trajectory for the cell and the organs and tissues in which this has happened? You know, the first principles assumption would be that you, you would probably see um, cancers being predominant. Um, how that would relate to prion-like disorders. I'm, I tend to view them as sort of um, intracellular, non-nuclear phenomenon, that it's happening in the cytoplasm where the proteins are interacting with each other. And that, that then causes the aggregations that we associate, things like Lewy bodies or um, alpha-synuclein inclusions in Parkinson's disease. So uh, again, there's there's multiple disease trajectories that you could travel down. It it's just dependent on you know the the luck of the draw, um, your own uh, biological state with respect to environmental stressors, your genetic makeup, um, in infective load, and you know, of course, how, how many times you would be exposed via um, gene transfection itself? I would, I would posit that these these effects, these amyloidogenic peptide folding responses, will be cumulative. And again, we have to we're data poor at the moment with respect to precise publications. But again, I would point to the excess death that we're seeing that's non-COVID, but is, is filling with disease categories that we would associate with amyloidogenic, preenergic um, disease-causing mechanisms. And again, primarily, they sit in the neurological and also the cardiovascular and um, amyloidosis in the heart. 
Okay. And then again, as a follow-up question for that, uh, do you think that somebody that's got the APOE4 gene, um, mm. do you think that if they got hit hard with the disease or had the injection, do you think that people like that would be yes. subject to increases in Parkinson's and dementia and Alzheimer's? Yes. So there's, um, there's lots of evidence of the interaction. I'm you know, I, ha I try to, in the week, cover the neuroscience papers as they emerge, as they relate to um, particularly SARS, um, but around gene transfection as well. And there's a preprint out at the moment, which um, I'm getting ready to uh, read to my audience, which shows that the spike protein can directly interact with alpha-synuclein. And alpha-synuclein is the peptide that we associate with um, Parkinson's. And it's, again, I would, I would try to encourage people to think about these neurodegenerative disorders as a spectrum. And, you know, it gets complicated with respect to dimensions, again, dependent upon your own biology, how you've been exposed, and um, in numerous, in numerous under, uh, uh, other factors that are unique to each person. And this is why it's such a terrible shame that um, people who have been uh, vaccine injured are not getting the support that they should do. They're being gaslit into thinking that there's something wrong with them uh, mentally, right? So right. there's there's a description of functional neurological disorders, which means it, it, it's a fancy medical sounding way of saying it's all in your head. Well, no, that's, that's not true. Um, there is something going on neurologically. The problem is, is that we, we lack the precision tools necessary to get in and fully understand what's happening at a moment to moment basis in, in the brain. And I agree with you. And, and, and I think that most conventional medicine doctors and not all, there's some really good ones out there. They're quick mm -hmm. to label people with these neurological, Hey, you've got anxiety. Hey, you've got depression. Mm -hmm. Hey, you've got bipolar. You know, maybe they're asking them 10, 20 questions because they've never taken a brain class in, in all their years. And they've never went back to school to even learn about it. But you have a lot of followers. Dr. Fleming has a lot of followers. Would you recommend to your followers? Because listen, T doing a saliva test for DNA, you know, it's 300 bucks. I mean, I, I use a company out of uh, Canada called the DNA company. Um, would you recommend to your listeners for those who view of those who maybe are vaccine injured or are starting to get neurological diseases just to know their, their DNA, especially on the APO4 side of things? Richard, you'd like to... Um chime in uh sure um so i think one of the problems with i, I think apoe4 might be of interest for people to know but like any test that you do i think the real question has to do with whether you as an individual are experiencing that and you can get a genetic test or a blood test but it won't tell you specifically if the symptoms you're having are the result of that. It may tell you if you have a predisposition to it, like having an APOE4. Um, 
just as having a BRCA1 and 2 gene may show you you have a predisposition, but it doesn't tell you that you have breast cancer or prostate cancer or, or uh, right. uh, any of the other cancers that go along with it. The imaging, I think, for many of us is going to be the key. And, you know, anybody, it's very clear I have a bias on that. I mean, I haven't spent this number of years quantifying what nuclear imaging does and differentiating these metabolic and blood flow changes of tissue. Uh, I haven't been doing that because I didn't think that that was the answer. In fact, that turns out very much to be the answer, whether it's SPECT or PET or squid technology or whether you're doing an anatomic test like MRI or, or CT or something else. Um, the real question is going to be, what are you doing? And, and do you have these manifications? So where you can go and you can get genetic testing, um, it won't tell you that that is, in fact, the reason why you're having that. Because as Kevin mentioned, there, there's a lot of variables that go into play here, all the way between viral load, what your general health is, what your nutritional status is, if you have other infl inflammation and blood clotting or inflammatory thrombotic diseases cancer, high blood pressure, diabetes, um, all of these, all of these play a role as in the field of medicine. I, you know, I think that it is unique as I look at the data that cardiologists are probably the, the best um, founded for understanding the consequences of not only this virus, viruses, but and I would say they are transfection um, genetic vaccines. It's very clear from the data. It's very clear that if you go back and you look at the original work that was done when they were trying to stabilize mRNA molecules, that when they put in the pseudouridine in it, they really discovered a couple of things. First off, they discovered that it made the molecule more stable. And as a result, they could then deliver more payload, if you will, whether no matter what the vector is, whether it was going to be lipid nanoparticles or adenovirus or whatever mechanism they want to use to deliver it to the cells, that it was more stable and it had a greater transfection, a greater potential to get into the DNA. Those same genetic vaccines also showed another phenomenon, and that is that they had an impaired immune response. The very thing that genetic vaccines or any vaccine supposed to do is provide an immune response. And the data, I know it goes back to 2009, and I've, I've been tracking it back before then, shows that <clears throat> that impairment of the immune response can be traced to a number of factors. One of the key ones is the depression of interferon, which has some important uh, functions, in, you know, Science and medicine isn't that bright in some ways. So interferon means it interferes. That was the original focus of the term. There's several different types of them, but they interfere with viral replication, but they're also critical for a number of other biochemical pathways. One of those is something that grows new blood vessels, something called vascular endothelial growth factor. And there's several types of those. And it turns out that the suppression of the interferon and the associated increase in VEGF-A, <clears throat> as we were talking during the last few days, 
is associated with a reduction in a particular sodium channel um, called the, or not sodium, potassium channel called the, the slow potassium channel in cells that tends to stretch out a part of the rhythm of the heart that's measured on the electrocardiogram by something known as the QT interval. And when that stretches, you can either be born with that with something called long QT syndrome, or you can have this type of uh, genetic vaccine uh, actually interfere with these slow potassium channels. It sets you up for a rhythm problem that will eventually result in sudden cardiac death. And it turns out that the people that are more inclined to have that phenomenon are older individuals with comorbidities and younger individuals who are stressing themselves. So when you increase your heart rate, you increase your adrenergic uh, load, if you will, charge, because it increases your heart rate, it gives less time for that channel to recover, and it precipitates these ventricular tachydysrhythmias and eventually cardiac death. So that's part of <clears throat> the, the issue with these genetic vaccines is that not only is the pseudouridine impairing the immune response leading to these sudden cardiac deaths, but it's also uh, decreasing the interferon. And another consequence of that is that it changes other pathways. Um, one in particular, also well-known to cardiologists, is called the metalloproteases. And they are called that because they tend to require zinc and other compounds to work. And they're important because they have to do with the fusion of cells. Um, it's partially what accounts for these spontaneous abortions is also is part of what increases the permeability through the blood brain barrier, allowing not only the genetic vaccines to get through, and they've already got a number of other mechanisms, the lipid nanoparticles facilitate it, but just the change in the metalloproteases opening up the blood brain barrier allows whatever is going on. <clears throat> to get through to the brain where it normally would not. We know that these spike proteins are pyogenic. Um, they're pyogenic to the brain as Kevin did an eloquent job. He always does with, with explaining this. And I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna stop for a moment. You started off by mentioning uh, this, this effort with 10letters.org to prosecute these individuals. And I think it's very important to point out that Dr. McCarran is one of the people involved in this with me, providing uh, materials and evidentiary materials and affidavits, as is Charles Rixey, uh, as is Dr. Johanna Dinert, and as is uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Huff, Andrew Huff. So, and, and also uh, two nurses, uh, Jennifer Bridges, uh, who's the Methodist nurse, is providing evidence of what she's seen in the hospital and uh, nurse Erin uh, Marie, uh, who is the whistleblower in New York City. Both of them are testifying as to the lack of nutritional support and fluid support provided to patients once hospitalized. So it's really uh, at least uh, seven people that are actively involved in that, certainly just not myself. Um, not to mention the people behind the scenes helping to make this happen. So I wanna give credit where credit is due and and recognize the people that have come forward um, and, and, and uh, considerable costs uh, for people attacking them. 
on uh, on social media and uh, and personally uh, in their lives and the stress that they go through. Um, I think. And thank uh, you, Kevin, for that. Ah, it's sport for me. I don't mind it. Yeah. <laughs> it makes for content for streaming. That's, so, uh, oh, that's what my JD is for. Is for my entertainment value and sport. Um, the uh, so the best measurement I think uh, for people, whether it be pyogenic diseases or these inflammatory body diseases. You know, Fleming method quantifies it. If you don't have that, then you can certainly visually use it. Um, whether you're using PYP, which is a nice trope looking for prion diseases, particularly whether you're using uh, FDG, uh, a glucose analog to look for metabolic activity or ammonia or, or water uh, or blood flow properties, you're looking for these changes as you put the picture together of what's really going on. And that's gonna be important, not only for finding these health problems, but for monitoring treatment effects, because there's this lag time that occurs <clears throat> in many of these diseases, both for cancer and cryogenic diseases for the development. And the recovery time from treatment is not the type of time I feel comfortable as a physician uh, extending because of the consequences of, of not getting the right treatment. We know that the pyogenic diseases, whether they be facilitated uh, neurologically by APOE uh, or something else, have some benefits from niacin, uh, from probucol. Uh, again, these are things that cardiologists had been working with. It's interesting to look at our literature. It's almost like we were working hand in hand with the virologists from the people developing these biological viral gain-of-function weapons and genetic vaccines because our, our, our paths of research were paralleling each other and overlapping in, in for several decades, um, <clears throat> sadly enough. Um, and I do remember when, when, when we started talking about prion diseases because unfortunately I'm old enough that 80 to 85 was when I was in medical college. I did a year of research and and I had a Jakob Kretzfeld patient, or that's what we called it now. They want to say Kretzfeld Jakob, so whatever. Um, but and and he was he was comatose, and I remember dealing with him, and and um, and that we had been talking about it in in classes long before then. So that was the year that a lot of this was being discussed. And well, how do you how do you deal with a protein that's abnormally folded? That when it comes into contact with a normally folded protein will change the structure of that. And which one of those proteins is it going to be? Like Kevin mentioned, you know, yeah, in many respects, when people become ill, it's not because they've been exposed to something different than somebody else has. It's how their body reacts to it that determines what their clinical consequence is going to be. And we get this all the time. We used to get this with, you know, somebody else got exposed to Influenza, they don't really get it. I've had influenza. It's, it's, it's not a fun thing to get exposed to, but some other virus. And, and they, they, they didn't even notice it. Well, everybody else in the family got extremely sick. Well, why was that? It's the unique differences in an individual and how they respond and what their health status is. And, and, that's, and that's part of the reason why we see such a dispersion in people's response to being infected or to being vaccinated. 
with these genetic vaccines. But what we do know from the genetic vaccines is not only is the load greater for the, the product, the, the vector, the shedding, which is what the federal government called it uh, in the 2015 and the 2021 reports, that shedding is the product of the vector. It's not only the spike protein, but it's very clear that the transmissible and transferable but genetic vaccines that they were working with uh, in uh, four or five years ago that they actually published with human being the test subject for SARS-CoV-2, um, that it's very real and it spreads from person to person. So those personal contacts are going to play a role too, you know, um, <clears throat> on, on the actual transmission of, of diseases. Uh, all of these different biochemical pathways, you know, when I started talking about this in early 2020, I started telling people they should really go thank that science nerd that they remember in, in college or wherever and say thank you for the work that was being done because it's because of that work that was done that we even have a fighting chance on, on addressing this. Um, and I would argue, trust the science. The scientists, maybe not, but trust the science because the science is what's rolling out the research that we're using right now to get a handle on what's been done to us and to better understand um, where these people are actually going with their, with their work. And I know that um, Kevin and I probably haven't talked about this, this in the depth that, that I think about it on any given day, but when you look at the people that have been involved in, this, in these genetic vaccines, you can trace the lineage of these people in this research back to uh, the German scientists that were taken out of Nazi Germany in World War II and yes. the, the research that they were doing on genetics. I mean, they had the Lamarckian genetics is what they were working on. The, the, the premise that you could change something uh, for the better. And, and the only question was, how could they make it permanent? And so, you know, by and large right now, I look at this as a real science project that they're running with to, and, and, you know, they've released since October of 2022, six genetic vaccines, um, one for cancer, one for, uh, for amyloidosis, one for cystic fibrosis, one for influenza, one for respiratory syncytial virus, and one for Down syndrome. Now, these are all genetic vaccines that they have not had to clear with anybody. They've been given the free go test. Uh, the RSV one has over 59 deaths so far. Uh, two children with Guillain-Barre, a neurologic manifestation uh, of, of the genetic vaccines. And the older individuals are developing venous blood clots in their legs, uh. just the inflammatory thrombotic response. So <clears throat> where, where some people may be getting this comfortable feeling that all of this is going quietly into the night, the, the, the consequences of diseases like cancer and pyogenic diseases are slow building chronic diseases that are showing up. I, they're ahead of schedule. I mean, right now, the CDC data shows roughly 500,000 excess deaths uh, in the last two and a half years, which about 112,000 of those are Alzheimer's disease, uh, a form of cryogenic disease. That's excess death, not the expected death, above and beyond the expected death. Um, 
We also know that some of the cardiac disease is clearly pyogenic. It's amyloidosis. But we also know that there's pancreatic amyloid disease going on, which is explaining some of the diabetes that's occurring. Um, and so, you know, m most organ systems can have some abnormal protein show up. And Burkhart is doing a great job at doing the immunohistochemistry staining, looking for the spike protein, differentiating between uh, just the genetic vaccine where where the only um, antigen or protein being made is the spike protein versus the the person-to-person -person acquired uh, viruses, which include the spike protein, the nucleocapsid, the membrane, the envelope. And, and the nucleocapsid turns out to be the one that humans have the best immune response to. But it's extremely fascinating to me that the genetic vaccines of the pseudouridine have a blunted interferon and immune response that is consequentially allowing for the genetic vaccines to be given and not um, rejected by the body. You know, that in, in is probably part and parcel of why we're seeing uh, the genetic shift from, from what's called IgG3 to IgG4 which means that as we've been increasing the frequency of these vaccinations, our bodies from the people that are being tested appear to be responding as if, almost as if it's an autoimmune phenomenon, as if to say, well, we've seen this, it's not really foreign, it's kind of part of what we've been processing in the body. So it changes the, the genetic response to it and that allows these genetic vaccines to be more easily delivered and accepted by our cells, allowing for an increased opportunity. And, and when you look, when you couple this with the six genetic vaccines, and from what I've seen, about 200 on the shelf ready to be launched, the question that comes to mind is why would somebody do that? And when you realize the lineage of these people back to Lamarckian genetics from, from the Nazi doctors and the twin studies and, and just carrying this through, my hypothesis, and I could be wrong, I, I wish I was, but I, I don't think I am, that they are on a quest to utilize these genetic vaccines to make you know, a better, healthier, longer living human without disease. And to get there means you're going to have to test what works and doesn't work. And you're kind of left with one or two scenarios. Uh, you either have a small group of subjects that you have to test over a long period of time to get that data, which doesn't do you much good if you're alive right now because you'll be dead when that comes out. Or you have to have a lot of test subjects that are willing to let you run research experiments on them to see what works and doesn't work to find the answer quicker, which is in my non-conspiracy, scientific, medical, legal brain is what I think that they're going after. And they recognize that it's going to cause harm, but they're doing it for humanity, right? For, for good in the, the end. Common right? good, I mean, that's what we always, the common good, Richard. The common good. Right. That's what, that's what we always tell ourselves, right? 
Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter which country you live in. It doesn't matter what race you are or religion you are. You're the good guys. You would never do anything wrong. The other people over there are always the bad guys. The problem is, is Eisenhower warned everybody about the military industrial complex and nobody or not enough people took him seriously. And they set up housekeeping to, to run these experiments. They've been doing it for decades. It's gotten more sophisticated. Uh, and the only one of the major reasons why I think that this all got out accidentally from, from Wuhan lab is because had they done it intentionally, they wouldn't have been as sloppy and there wouldn't have been so much evidence for us to find. And probably not as many ticked off scientists uh, and others out here collecting data. Right. Um, as, as, as far as, you know, uh, putting the pieces together and you, you have people like Kevin looking at the papers and going, I'm going to read through this and I'm going to share it with people like I'm in journal club, you know, as opposed to the twits on Twitter that think they're in journal club and want to be and, and are out there attacking things that they don't like. But, you know, Kevin gives people a nice example of how to review a research paper um, objectively and to look at its strengths, look at its weaknesses, and, and to learn when to take that piece of data and put it into the puzzle that you're working on. Um, and thank Charles you Rixie for that. Has, no. No problem. Charles Rixey has, has done an outstanding job of just, I think, methodically trying to put timeline together and, and put the papers in to, to show people these are not coincidences. These are, these are well thought out um, uh, steps that are sequential. Uh, Johanna Deinert has been doing an excellent job of trying to explain to people uh, first in Germany and dealing with the abuse there and then sharing around the world her perspective of how this is not making sense immunologically on how you would normally treat patients or, or, or vaccinate people. And then and I, I'm sorry to interrupt, is, Richard, but I would, so, I would just like to add this, that um, there are some of us, particularly those in Europe, Joanna, um, they are literally under state-sanctioned um, oppression, literally meaning jackboots through the door for clinicians and scientists who have questioned the orthodox narrative. And this has been very, very costly on these individuals, um, and particularly you, Anna. I know I speak to her regularly. Um, and these, there's a lot of sacrifice taking place. I'm very lucky in Japan that I don't have to worry about that too much. But the, the atmosphere in Europe um, places like Canada, I think less so in the United States, but still there was the um, state, not state, but federal in your instance, where they had these active narrative control um, tools in place, which meant kicking people from platforms. Um, and, you know, one of the more disturbing aspects, so people, people should get familiar with something called Project Halo. And that was run... Um, or it is run um, as part of the World Economic Forum um, special interest group. 
and they're just one of many but this is an easy one that a lot of people can they've got an idea now who Klaus Schwab is and how they're working together uh, hand in glove with the state and you know it's you know state and corporations that's the uh, very definition of um, fascism um, in this instance and we must uh, we must remember that there are people who are working under extreme duress at the moment to raise what is an important issue and I would just frame it in this context previous vaccine rollouts when there was you know 10 deaths I'm, I'm thinking of the flu vaccine um, it was 1978 I want to say maybe maybe Richard has a better um, so, so are you thinking about uh, swine flu yes yes yeah swine flu uh, so it actually there was a couple times but 1976 I think was the last go round and with the first 25 deaths there was an uproar and there was a total of 53 deaths there are um, well, it's been a while since I looked at the numbers, but it was it's over 44,516 accepted vaccine deaths for these SARS-CoV-2 genetic vaccines. Now, that that is astounding because that number of deaths are more deaths than the United States has suffered militarily in every war we've been involved with except our five bloodiest wars. That is it, it's, it's unconscionable that anybody can look at that, I think. And, and I think it's a, it's, it's a fascinating uh, reflection of the societies that we live in right now. That as, as I've told people back in the mid 1970s when we didn't care about anybody and we weren't all kumbaya, 53 deaths did it. You know, 25 launched it and, and 60 minutes did a, a real mainstream media uh, uh, investigation of it. Now that we're all loving and we care and we don't want to offend anybody, you know, 44,516 deaths is just not enough to get anybody's attention. Mm -hmm. um, if you didn't get the sarcasm in that, I, I, I can redo it and, and direct it a little bit harder for you. In your charming, um, in your charming way. And, and I, I know, yeah, charming that, you know, uh, Kevin, she's trying to work on charming for me, and I told her it's a, it's a lost cause. Um, We're getting you know, there. Anybody yeah, don't try with me. <laughs> US, yeah, anybody who thinks the U.S. government is not inclined to do this type of thing, I, I, I want to give you a personal insight. I belong to a group of people at, that we have called ourselves JFK kids because thanks to JFK, we got accelerated doctoral training when I entered seventh grade the black suits showed up 30 of us got our names called we began our doctoral training at that time while we were doing at the same time we did the stupid stuff in secondary school and and we got at the end of that six years we got our three of us out of the 30 got our phd but part of what we did was on a weekly basis, we ran scenarios that everybody has come to call 201. Who lives and who dies? It was part of our training. So in reflection of that, I think it's interesting that they would take teenagers 
in the 1960s, train us in whatever our aptitude was, while at the same time, run scenarios by us on a weekly basis of if you're in this scenario, who are you going to let live and who are you going to let die? And they literally gave us data like age, who was married to who, what their IQ was, what their aptitude was. In other words, who's worth saving and who's worth letting die. That was part of what we were trained with. So if anybody is listening to this and they think it's beyond comprehension that the U.S. government could possibly be so cold as to be conducting research, go to Wikipedia and see how many research projects the DOD has done. You know, I knew. Yeah, they're probably the, being uh, actively scrubbed right now. So yeah, get back, get in there fast. Yeah, you know. Yeah. What? Watch. Watch. I mean, I knew one of the Tuskegee Airmen. I met one of them before he passed away. Um, these, you know, this. My question. Here's my question. It's very clear the Department of Defense spent more than half the money involved in this gain of function research. And it's very clear to me that the Wuhan Institute of Virology Lab, the Chinese Communist Party, not to be confused with the Chinese people and the PLA, were not smart enough or financially sound enough to develop biological viral weapons. And yet, we put that there. So here's my question. Is the DOD run by the CCP, is the CCP run by the DOD, or are they just so tightly in bed together that you can't pull them apart like Kevin's Lego block? That's yeah, a, um, go ahead, Kevin. That's a, that's well, a good way to I, I, end that. I, I wanted to just say that um, people, people need to recognize that what we're dealing with over the last three years is the consequence of decades of biological warfare research and its medical countermeasure um, industry. And it's we've essentially had a sort of global Chernobyl-like event. Now, again, I don't know if we'll ever get the data with respect to intent, but we know, we know that it's happened and it's part of a, or it's being utilized by um, power structures, um, the well, the corporate world who are trying their best to invade into the sovereignty of individuals for ever more closer <laughs> tracking. And the novel gene transfection technologies is a pathway to that quote unquote full spectrum dominance that they're after with respect to micromanaging um, individuals and all of it is dangerous okay so from the virus to the gene transfection to the weaponization of the um, bureaucracies to the future plans and trajectories on where they wish to take this technology and uh, unless we manage to pump the brakes right now on where they are going it's looking very, very dystopian from my perspective. And the censorship that we've seen over the last three years will not improve. It will only get worse unless, unless enough people are 
switched on to what's actually happening. And we need to break up the public-private partnership model that's being pushed by these transnational corporations. That is the fundamental enemy here. These are the ones that are making the money from this biowarfare research. It reaches into our institutes, into the academies. It's a spreading terrible cancer upon our institutes that were bequeathed to us for our protection and you know, advancement. Um, and I've, I'm of the opinion right now that these institutes need radical restructuring and I mean I mean radical very very severe um, takedown scientists that didn't speak up that could have done it at the beginning need to be held responsible those who have been actively involved in these programs and we know that these networks spread far and wide it doesn't just include eco health it spreads to um, places like Ukraine where we're seeing the you know as a consequence of the war and data that's come out we're seeing um, the fact that they had these programs running there, funded by DOD, funded by DITRA, and we, uh, in, and it involves the highest echelons of political power and industrial power. And you know, a classic example that they tried to shut down was the Biden's association with companies operating in Ukraine doing this work. Um, organizations like Black and Veatch, again, DOD. And we, we have to find a way to make sure that these people are not abusing this, um, what is essentially a, a, a money hose being sprayed at the research to look for elements that can be tweaked with gain of function. And right now, we're not doing a very good job. Um, I'm, I'm, you can't find enough people that have the courage in, in my eyes on, on what I'm saying. But mm. Kevin, let me ask you another question. I have a couple more questions for you um, before I move on to Dr. Fleming. So between the people who have had the synthetic mRNA injection versus someone like myself who chose not to get it, but I had the disease COVID. Are neurological problems worse in the people who had the injection? Um, I think we, it, again, it depends on the individual, the exposure, but um, I would just make the point that spike is spike is spike. It doesn't matter where it comes from. It has this amyloidogenic profile and you should endeavor to mitigate exposure. Um, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer in the natural immunity, particularly in those who were, you know, we know the risk stratification. They, they, they don't need such a radical intervention based on genetic engineering tools. It's not a, it's not a mass public health measure. They want it to be, but all the time that you would be encoding something that has preonergic capacity and having that expressed whether inside your body as a therapeutic or potentially inside the um the food chain um the 
again, I, I'll refer back to the mad cow um, disaster. And the we went to extraordinary lengths to make sure that that beef did not enter the food chain. But right now they're talking about using mRNA products and expression oh, vectors in our food chain without proper testing. And if there are prion mechanisms at play, well, I, I grew up with the notion that, you know, we we worked our hardest to move and move all our systems away from anything that could be, could, could potentially trigger those types of events. And we've suddenly uh, leapt through the Rubicon and embracing it with both arms because the corporate world sees it as a way to, um, well, again, surveillance, profits, power, and um, I'm personally very concerned. And in fact, it's got even worse recently because they're talking about including the nuclear capsid um, RNA in the gene transfection shots, which would make it literally impossible to identify what could be viral induced um, pathologies versus gene transfection, because they're the primary um, peptides that we would try to stain for. Now, maybe you could argue that they, you could look for other peptides to try to um, discern if it's uh, from the genetic vaccines or the virus itself. But the problem is, is that the autopsies are not being done. It's very hard to get this data. And, you know, it was a issue in the United States as SARS broke out that they just were not doing the I, I can hear an echo from someone if someone's running on speakers oh. i'm not sure what, um yeah it seems to have gone but um the autopsy data has been extraordinarily difficult to get and again we the world owes professor burkhart uh, in germany a, a a huge debt of gratitude for him stepping into the breach and at least at least giving us concrete examples pathological tissue that's been taken out and processed properly that shows that gene transfecting spike protein can trigger amyloidogenic cascades and it's it's at this fundamental level that people need to be thinking and protein protein interactions again i, I realize that there's a sort of technical um edifice that you have to get over but um it's it's vital that you understand the implications of what this means. And again, I'm, I come, I'm, I'm left aghast at watching what I thought was generally a functional system that realized that those approaches would be problematic. And the issue we're dealing with is those who are pushing the medical countermeasure side it's, it's often a case that they consider that the expressed products are inert. This is, a, this is an insane way of thinking about how, how these proteins, uh, neurotoxic proteins, cytopathic proteins, express in the body. And we, shouldn't, um, we should not let our guard down in this instance because the predators are ready to pounce. I agree with you on that. You know, I, I think there's 
there's two things that to add to that, um, Kevin, if you don't mind, uh, Lori. Uh, one is the recognition that aloxystatin, E64D, was a drug that had already been proven beginning in the 1980s to prevent the attachment of several viruses, including coronaviruses, and which they have demonstrated reduces traumatic brain injury. Now, above and beyond the implications for the fact that they were working on a drug that provides treatment for SARS-CoV-2 viruses is the ugliness in refraining from allowing a drug to come to market that could treat traumatic brain injury for whatever reason, motor vehicle accident, sports injury, you name it. So not even making that available to people when it's very clearly a drug that works speaks to the type of people that are doing this research. The, the two major differences between getting this, these viruses person to person versus the genetic vaccine is the viral load, <clears throat> where we know that instead of hundreds or thousands of viruses that can, uh, can only get into a cell by first the NER5AC receptor, then the ACE2 and the sequences I've explained before, that limits the numbers that can get into cells to replicate and produce a harmful product. The genetic vaccines, whether it's the lipid nanoparticle for Pfizer, Moderna, or the adenovirus for Janssen, the DNA, carry billions by, by calculation of codes, and they just merge in with the cells. The lipid nanoparticles in particular merge into the cells, dumping an unexcusable quantity of product into the cells for production of spike proteins. And there's that additional point that I, that I mentioned earlier, which is the understanding from the early research that these pseudouridines uh, impair immunologic response. <clears throat> so that opens up this entire cascade of chemical pathways that lead to increased brain permeability, in which increases the ability of the spike protein to get in the brain. And, you know, quite frankly, it also has part of, of the, the uh, explanation for why these spontaneous abortions are occurring. Um, so the genetic vaccines not only provide a greater load, but they were also then probably providing that load on top of people who got infected, adding insult to injury and interfering with the immune response, where at least person to person, you're gearing up an immune response unless you got an extremely bad case of it. And, and that, that data shows that people who did poorly were the ones who weren't able to mount an, uh, an interferon response or had such a massive load that their interferon response or innate T cells were overwhelmed and it took longer. And those people took longer to recover and had poorer outcomes. So impairing that interferon, um, which these genetic vaccines do, is another insult to injury in, in, in the picture uh, when you're asking the question, what's worse, the, the viruses or the genetic vaccines? Um, clearly, we've not been in this scenario before where something man-made became the infectious agent that drove everything. 
but something that's limited by receptors and causes an immune response versus something that's not limited by receptors and impairs the immune response bears witness to the fact that I think the genetic vaccines clearly are causing more damage than the viruses themselves. Well, I'm, I, I think we need thorough uh, investigation into this where the um, initial working hypotheses are not biased um, either, one way or the other. And we must be making sure that um, these spontaneous deaths that are being reported are investigated properly. The issue we have right now is that they're putting these people into the ground or sending them up in smoke before we can get the data that's needed. And it's the autopsy data that really yeah. defines the, the issue at hand. You, you hit on it earlier when you said our institutions need to be restructured. I remember being a medical student and we were encouraged when somebody died to ask the family for an autopsy. And it depended upon how you wanted to look at that. I mean, I, I think, you know, we were taught, my, my generation, that much of what we knew about medicine was thanks to people who had volunteered their bodies for autopsies after a bad outcome. So we could figure out why there was a bad outcome. So I remember being a student and intern and resident fellow and on and on and on. I asked for patients because I, I don't do something to intentionally kill somebody. So I'm not worried legally about somebody finding out a mistake. But if somebody dies unexpectedly, the question is, why did I lose that patient? I shouldn't have lost that patient. Why, was the pa why did the patient die so that we don't repeat this? And that is the history of what these autopsies and pathology tissue have taught us over the years, which is what were the mistakes? Why did people die? And what can we do to prevent that from happening? And this run amok, we're not going to autopsy people that are dying. You know, that goes right in the face of, of, of everything we've done to practice to try to reduce harm. It raises the question of they don't want to reduce the death or they don't want you to know that they did something and are going to be caught. That's the only two reasons for not doing the autopsy. Yeah, um, very much so. And I, I would just add this caveat that, um, you know, I've got a notice from Pfizer that they're putting out adverts for um, its systemic uh, transithrin amyloidosis. Right. And it's it's curious. Uh, it's more than curious, but people should be very suspect of these companies who are suddenly starting to announce therapies for diseases that are linked to protein misfolding. It's occurring more and more. And I would posit that there's a degree of corporate malfeasance that is trying to well they might be trying to cover up the damage but they're trying to do it in such a way as to hide the causal factors to begin with and again any young person in the current environment that dies 
I hate to use that phrase, died suddenly, but um, who who loses their life when every um, every normal metric should indicate that they have got many many productive years of quality life in front of them, and the fact that this this data seems to be being shuttled away and the investigations not done is a gross misjustice to the families and to everyone who's been exposed that the the scope of malfeasance is um terrifying when you think about it from the biowarfare medical countermeasures um industries which i think which i'm sure borders to this point to the collusion and cover-up within the institutes that again were there to well we trusted them to do the right thing and they very much didn't and you know I, I wish Charles was in on this chat right now just to um, hammer home the point that they knew that there was signals within the molecular structure of the original Wuhan strain which made it highly suspect as being a lab origin pathogen and they went to extraordinary lengths to cover it up they went to extraordinary lengths to pull in therapeutics that essentially had been untested and I'm a specific example being remdesivir um, there were innumerable early interventions that well-qualified doctors and clinicians could have taken but were specifically forbidden from doing so and th they're just hoping that that you know that with time that that goes off into the distance and we forget what it is that they did and how they've um particularly i, I think this is very much u.s phenomenon but they've had a top-down um, corporate driven approach to how to deal with SARS and again the primary driving factors in this was it had to be vaccine 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 that's all you heard it had to be this next generation of technology and it it had to be this next generation of drugs that they would force into people when they were going to the hospital and people need to understand people were getting sick they were going to the hospital and iatrogenic death was a big causal factor in the tripping of the, the bureaucratic symptoms uh, systems which brought us to the point where we are now and we cannot let that be forgotten i think kevin that um here in the US, there's not a lot of doctors that have that type of courage. I mean, they live by their paycheck and they're not willing to give it up. That's why mm -hmm. most of the doctors even talking, which is gonna be one of my questions for Dr. Fleming, they don't even wanna talk about gain of function. How dare we talk about gain of function because I'll get fired from my job. Mm -hmm. and, and that's where we are. And it's one of the reasons that it's still going on. Like they don't want to talk gain of function and more and more people are being murdered. Listen, my brother was murdered. He was given remdesivir. There was nobody courageous enough to step up and say, listen, you don't need remdesivir. Let's give you, a, you know, another, another drug out there. Mm -hmm. And 
equally today, the ones that have stood up no longer have jobs. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's it's such a big battle that we're fighting between, you know, the new shots that are coming out, what we're fighting here, you know, the neurological diseases, the suicide, you know, the younger people that are now taking care of their elderly parents uh, because something is wrong with them from the shot. The doctors don't want to make the, the, the connect the dots. They don't want to make the connection and, and fear that they're going to lose their job, mm. but they're dying on their dime. So until these doctors that aren't standing up are getting tapped with lawsuits, I don't know if it's, I, I just don't see it stopping. Um, mm. Not even yeah, in we, the United we, States. We have a very um, fundamental issue around, how we're putting our um, professional class, let's say the doctors, etc., into these institutions where, and you know, again, I would say this is primarily more a U.S. issue, that because the cost of going to medical school is so high, that you you're essentially putting collars around the doctors that do graduate and get into the system and you know these people do have the best of intentions i do think that you know apart from the few bad apples but it's the existential fear of being in debt that stops people from being able to speak out and you know i'm of the opinion that you know you should not be putting our youth into such massive debt and burdening them not not only financially but also at a well in terms of their ability to speak out uh, with respect to the ethics that are being trampled on um very violently at the moment by these institutions and from my perspective they seem to have been highly well, I would just say weaponized. And, you know, how, how far does this go back? Well, you could you could argue decades, but I, I like to use 9-11 as a, uh, as a bookmark beginning of how these systems got to where they are today. People need to remember that it wasn't just airplanes um, crashing into buildings on that day. There was also anthrax attacks. Those anthrax attacks wasn't from some <laughs> laboratory in the I don't know, the Middle East. This was this was U.S. made anthrax. They know it by the the properties that it had. So there was someone in the deep within the heart of the system that wanted to push in this particular direction. And once the Patriot Act came in, it's become ever more sophisticated at uh, uh, finding its way into institutions and putting in the um the functional setup or networks that inc- uh, incorporates everything to look at everything through a biowarfare paradigm and again I think that's what we've seen emerge in the last few years. And again, I think these are 
um, literal um, offensive attacks in a new type of warfare. And people need to really wrap their minds around what that means and what that could mean in the future for um, themselves, their loved ones, and um, just humanity in general. We must get these organizations and individuals under control. We know who they are. They, they've left a large public trail because of their grants and publications. And, you know, m many of them might have just been for the proverbial quote-unquote useful idiot within the system that was just... They, they were doing great from it. And so why would they rock the boat? And that's, that's the problem that we're dealing with right now. And until, until something substantial happens legally um my <laughs> i say prognosis but i i think we're going to still be in for very much a tough time um in in the near near term and far term i i, I agree with you and the problem is and i'll just kind of add to that before i ask dr uh, fleming's question is that we look at the doctors graduating med school i mean they've painted big pharma like that's all they know. They've they've taken uh, truly how to use, you know, food as medicine and medicine as food into which drug can you prescribe to your patient? I mean, they keep us in sick care system that for I know a lot of us here, you know, in Utah, in our patriot group, uh, and I don't like to use the word fear, but we don't want to go to a doctor. You know, we're going to rely on uh, on another source, even if it has to be ourselves. But we don't want to go into a conventional medicine doctor and hear what they have to say, because it's all going to be about big pharma and being labeled. But I guess that's a topic for another conversation. And I'm glad you brought that up, because I, I, I do believe that we're headed that way. But Dr. Fleming, um, I have a question for you. So you often talk about Professor Luc Montier, and he was a, in 2008, he won a Nobel Peace Prize uh, for his work on HIV. A recent published paper that he co-authored describes 26 cases where the patients became severely ill with spontaneous symptoms shortly after a COVID-19 emergency use authorized injection, 15 days after their second injection, 23 of the 26 cases developed. The other three cases were associated with AstraZeneca and symptoms appeared within the first month. Of the 26 people, 20 had died at the time of writing that paper. And the remaining six were in critical condition. The mean time to death was under five months after the injection. Can you talk a little bit more about this, please? And I have the PubMed article, you need reference, which I don't think you do. Um, so Professor Montagne, I during the last couple of years of his life uh, and while all this was going on, we're exchanging emails and communicating um, by Skype 
a number of times. And he was extremely concerned, and, and I was too, but um, about where we were headed in comparing SARS-CoV-2 with HIV. And the same pattern of behavior that was going on. Um, we saw it in electron microscopic evaluation of HIV and SARS-CoV-2, uh, both before and after uh, protease inhibitor therapies. Uh, and there was lots of concern with the HIV vaccines that came through and the harm that was being caused to the immune system when people were getting those vaccines. So in his latter days, as he was looking at people getting vaccinated and looking at how rapidly some of them are dying, looking at some of the incidents of prion disease, um, he was convinced and, and I have to agree with him that there is, you know, what he was saying were the people that were more predisposed to die. They had more of the comorbidities. They were at a poor immune status. So again, it's one of those variables, which is how healthy are you? How much are you exposed to? How will you respond to it? <clears throat> and looking at those people, they were the ones that were most likely going to respond negatively, and they did. So it tells you that the worst fear that you can have, which is if everything is going against you, if you get exposed to something like these genetic vaccines, you really are running the risk of, of, of dying. Um, I know that the BBC contacted me. They were going to do a tribute to him uh, on his death on the 8th of February last year. And the, so they called me up to do a, a brief interview just to chat. Um, and their last question was, wasn't it too sad? Didn't I think it was sad? that Luke had lost his mind in his later years, that he'd lost his sharpness. He, he no longer was the scientist, right? Because he was coming up with this concern about the genetic vaccines. And I explained to them that Luke was as sharp as I had ever known him over the years um, and was quite intelligent and articulate in his concerns of what he was seeing and the death. And they kind of said, well, okay, thank you. We'll, we'll be back to you uh, in a moment for the interview. And then I got a text that said um, they weren't going to do an interview with me. They were just going to show some video of him for his tribute. And it was uh, uh, not much of a tribute. So they didn't want to hear that. <clears throat> I So I think it's very clear that they the more at risk you are, the more compromised you are immunologically, the more at risk you are from health problems. These genetic vaccines are, are going to find enough individuals to kill in short order. And it's very clear that if you, if you look at the time of death from uh, of those 44,000 plus 
people. I'm still stunned that nobody thinks that this is a massive number, that the arguments are, it's for the betterment of everybody. You know, it's not that many people. Uh, we're, we're saving lots of lives. Nobody has provided me any data to show me that there are more people alive because of these genetic vaccines. In fact, the EUA data doesn't show that at all. The EUA data doesn't statistically show any difference between people who were eventually diagnosed with the disease COVID or died, whether they were vaccinated or not. So that data is not there. It's, there's no data to show a benefit. Um, we're going to see if people continue to get these genetic vaccines, we're gonna see more deaths. And, 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 and the really sad thing is, you know, we're talking about it as death being this ultimate bad event, which it is. I mean, it's permanent. But the maiming of people, the permanent disability and injuring of people, the vaccine adverse events, that these people are going to have to live with the consequences of, and their families are going to have to live with the consequences of for as long as they are alive. And I, and I promise you, having taken care of Jakob Crutchfield patients and, and seen these pyogenic diseases, this is not a pretty picture. You know, we used to talk about, you know, Alzheimer's being this disease that was harder on the family than the patient because the patient doesn't know they have a disease. Now just exponentially multiply this to, to get a better picture of what we're talking about. What we have already done to the species is devastating. You know, I, uh, United States, 1.1 million deaths because nobody treated the virus for the inflammation of blood clotting, that nobody treated the airway problems, that nobody treated the infectious problems. Equivalent to the number of deaths the U.S. military has sustained since 1776. One and a half, 1.6 million vaccine adverse events. So if you just take that number and you don't say it's 1% or 10%, I mean, seriously, if you have to add one or two zeros behind this number to get on board a problem, then I'm sorry for you. But 1.6 million deaths, we have over 800,000, 1.5, 1 1.6 million deaths. We have more than 800,000 more injured Americans from these genetic vaccines than the U.S. military has suffered since 1776, right? We lose more people every week to COVID than we lost at Twin Towers or Pearl Harbor. And guess what? The genetic vaccines aren't changing that number. And, and the consequences to the maiming of Americans, the maiming of people around the world. I mean, with Kevin on here, I feel like I have to apologize to the Japanese people for the harm that's been done to the Japanese people because of US military monies coupled with Chinese military monies that have harmed Japanese, Germans, Britons, you, you name it, right? I mean, we are, 
the country that has not only produced biological viral weapons in violation of the Biological Weapons Convention Treaty, in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 175, in violation of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, in violation of the Nuremberg Code. We've not only done that, but we have continued to decimate our, our people. We've hidden treatments from them, aloxostatin, which by itself would have done it. The, the, the drugs that we did in our national clinical trial show there are treatments for this. And yet we have continued to promulgate as if it's somehow now true that these genetic vaccines are helping anybody when it is very clear that they came from a design that doesn't produce an immune response, but, in, but produces transfection of human DNA. And we're no longer naive scientifically or medically. This is not pre the DNA project. We know with the DNA project, with the human Gen genome project, that 18% of our DNA is composed of what's called long interspersed nucleotide elements one that are specifically designed to take outside genetic material and insert it into human DNA. Then everybody in this Lamarckian group dating going back to World War II since knows that the lipid nanoparticles cause diffusion, know that it causes the, the, the uh, immune switching, knows that it uh, reverse transcribes into our DNA and knows that they're doing it. And they're making an argument that people like Professor Luke are out to lunch because he recognizes that his, the people he saw were dying due to the immediate effect of these genetic vaccines that are killing people. We have never ever vaccinated with a frequency or the potency of anything like this before. And we have done it in the face of no scientific evidence to support its use and every scientific reason to cause this to question. And if we didn't, if we didn't drive the nail in the coffin hard enough, when they did the pediatric FDA hearing to vaccinate the children and, and the comment was made that we won't know what it does to the children until we do it. History showed us that in World War II, Nazi doctors and nurses experimented upon people to see what it would do so they would learn. And they did those studies principally because they wanted questions to protect their soldiers at the cost of somebody else. And that mentality is carried through today with these genetic vaccines as they're looking for ways to change human DNA to make their healthier, longer living human being for the good of the people. It just turns out that the people we're talking about now aren't German Nazis. They are American and, and world leaders that have here's the correct use of the term conspiracy, who have conspired together. They have joined together to hide their actions in doing something for an outcome that they desire that most people would not desire. I have no plans of offering up my children as research guinea pigs. 
I don't think Dr. McCarran has any plans of offering his children up as research guinea pigs. I don't think anybody should offer themselves up as research guinea pigs. If these people want to play with somebody's genetics, I'm all in favor of them playing with their own. In fact, maybe this should be part of what they do once we put them in prison, when we get these criminal indictments, is to allow them to experiment upon each other until they decide that maybe it's not a good idea. Well, let me ask you a question with that said, Dr. Fleming. <clears throat> There's so much disinformation out there. I, <clears throat> I just, peep, I, I really believe a lot of people are misled. They can't find it. Uh, Kevin hit it kind of on the spot. They scrub the data. You can't find it. Nobody's talking about <clears throat> it. How do they, how do they, how do we combat that? <clears throat> Because people are still in line at Walgreens and CVS and Smith's grocery stores. They're still in line getting their shots and their boosters. I, and it's one thing I don't get. What? How do we fix that? And I don't know how it well, is in Japan. And I guess the follow-up would be that when you're done, maybe Kevin could say what's happening in Japan. Yeah, you know, I mean, part, part of the answer is making sure that our voices aren't silenced. I mean, one of the, one of the requirements, you know, and I know everybody, you know, as, I, as I work with everybody to get the documents, we have the PDF of the documents that we are using to make the case for these criminal charges. Why? Because I am convinced they will scrub it. They will, they will remove any evidence of the wrong and, and, that's why we have to have the documents going in because once they know what we're using, it's too late. And thank God we've, we've got about 95% of those documents in as, as I speak. Um, and, and my USB drives aren't located in one place anymore. There's about a dozen different places. So good luck finding them folks, but it's getting the truth out there. And it's, you know, one of the, one of the things that I've done here, in, in Texas is tried to explain when I'm talking to people, you know, several years ago, a couple of years ago now, there was this schism between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated and even so bad that the unvaccinated wanted nothing to do with the vaccinated and they were upset. And I pointed out, I said in my charming way, as you like to do this, to try not to judge the people who'd been vaccinated. Because by and large, many of those people, many, not all, thought they were doing something right. They really were caring about somebody else. They didn't know they were being played. They were trying to protect the woman down the street or the man down the street or grandma or grandpa or whoever. And as they start to experience symptoms, they're going to have two places to look. And this is what people, I think, need to understand. They can either turn to people who did not get vaccinated, who are willing to listen and say, let us help walk you through this as best we can. Let me offer these, these treatment ideas or these are the things to look at. Or they can turn to the government who's already lied to them about this. They're not going to turn around and go, yeah, let me give you a lot of statin. Let me give you niacin. Let me, let me tell you to go get propofol. Let me tell you that to, to uh, treat the inflammation of the blood color. They're, they're not going to do that. The only way, the way that the United States of America became a country 
you know, we didn't have mainstream media, did we? It was word of mouth. It was person to person. It was caring about another human being and going out there and saying, look, I get what you were doing, but I also want you to know that when you're having problems, I'm here for you. I'm not going to judge you. We're way past that. The people that need to be judged are the criminals who set this up and are running this gauntlet. They're the ones that need to be judged. And, and to... Sadly enough, the more people are harmed, the more it is making its ugly, rearing its ugly head so people are aware, wait a minute, there are a lot of people dead. There are a lot of people maimed. Um, something's wrong here. In contrast, people, you don't have to have an advanced degree to be smart enough to figure out when you're being lied to. You just need to have other people around you willing to listen to you, allow you to learn that you've been lied to. I've said it before, I'll say it again. The two smartest people I have ever met in my life had an eighth grade and a 12th grade education. And they were far superior to me. My mom and dad were make me pale by example, and they knew if somebody was lying to them, they could put it together. And that's what the people have going for them. The ability, even under this stress, to recognize that something's been done to them. And for a way out, 10letters.org is our way out taking it to the prosecuting attorneys is our way out because there's a lot of prosecuting attorneys. There's a lot of elected officials that have seen really, really bad things happen to people they care about. And they know they have to do something because it's hitting home. Unfortunately, that's frequently what has to happen. But we need to be there to help explain it to them and to understand and work with them. And um, I'm going to add to that. It's not the average Joe, somebody like me, who could possibly get hit with COVID or my brother who could get hit with COVID and he dies. It's got to be somebody in the mainstream media. It's got to be somebody's mm -hmm. actor, somebody's mm -hmm. actress. I I'm sorry, because my life probably doesn't mm -hmm. make a difference to Congress. My brother's life isn't going to make a difference to Congress. It has to be people with the big names. And I'm not wishing ill harm on anybody, but it has to be the bigger names because that is when people will start standing up. There's not a lot of us left that have not taken the shot. And it's getting harder and harder and harder to stand up, even in America, because Laurie, I don't look at it. Do you mind if I ask you a question? You can tell me sure. to mind my own business. It's, okay. It's fine. Um, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about the loss. Now's the time to do it. <laughs> the, the loss of your brother. Um, that must have been a very painful experience. Um, I'm just interested um, which variant hospitalized him and what were the protocols rolled out on him and how old was he? And he went into hospital. So he was 64 and two months prior, he just had his blood labs, um, which showed nothing wrong with him. 
He's probably 10 pounds overweight, um, got hit with the Delta variant. I don't know what Delta variant had hit him hard. Um, and I had some supplements and medication, but they were afraid to, to give it to him. And so he was in Idaho and then he was put in the hospital there given remdesivir, which I pretty much knew what the outcome was going to be, unfortunately. So at 64, he was in, he was given remdesivir. It shut down his kidneys. Um, he got COVID pneumonia. Uh, they vented him and um, he died. Never came back. That was mm -hmm. the protocol. And two weeks prior to that, I was at up in Idaho and I had spent a couple nights with my brother and I was at a dear friend, uh, Dr. Don Huber, who's, you know, on our roundup poisoning uh, team out here. And his 59 year old son-in-law up in Idaho was murdered the same way. They couldn't get him ivermectin. They gave him the same all that remdesivir um, vented him and then he died. So mm. it, it's like we knew the routine unfortunately yeah and the problem is again the the systems have been set up such that they were poised to be able to financially benefit from implementation of these types of protocols that we're talking about oh, but and... no one ever gets like a, a bill i mean a two hundred fifty thousand. if i had to guess and never a single bill I mean, yeah. I can't even go in and yeah, no, I know. So, you know, it's, I'm an American citizen. I can't really say I'm really proud of America on how we're standing up against this disease. Yeah, but this, and, this is the invasion of the Republic by this corptocracy. And, you know, the, the countries as we know them no longer exists they they are they are corporations there's usa plc uk plc and they operate at a transnational level highly coordinated we saw that emerge through the pandemic and we know that they had these systems in place things like trusted news initiative um again the narrative control programs on social media like halo project these are, these are all extant facts that were used to limit people's ability to reach out and find alternatives. They were, they were just given essentially one choice. And at the beginning of the pandemic, people were told to go home, take acetaminophen till their lips turn blue and come back to the hospital. I think we could have had a radical difference had they just said take aspirin because it's better for coagulation and th 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 these issues compounded one on top of the other and it again in retrospect when you look at it it looks highly highly coordinated and again even down to something like remdesivir which they which they had you know it just happened to be sitting around ready to be rolled out en masse and yep. the the carnage that seems to have been left by the use of that drug particularly in the u.s is i think again it's incalculable every every loss of life is a tragedy whether it's to the virus itself whether it's to um iatrogenic um 
well, I don't, I don't want to say it's malfeasance, but just iatrogenic deaths due to poorly, poorly constructed protocols and standard operating procedures that were geared towards maximizing profit off each patient that came in the door. And finally, the, um, the dispersal of what are military designed medical countermeasures and were deployed in a militaristic fashion such that informed consent was not even necessary because of the emergency use authorizations all of this happened and there's well again in my mind um if you're going to tackle the problem you have to you have to address each one of these issues and you know the that there's a friend of mine and I, i'm trying to hook richard up as well i think you've spoken to nick but it's very important that people understand i'm going to use his term which is the medical anthropology and how far back these systems go and richard mentioned paperclip um well progeny i guess or, or, or those that came from paperclip the problem is that most people tend to think that oh that was all rocket engineers actually it wasn't it was primarily medical doctors and scientists who were working in this bio warfare domain same for the japanese they did the same thing unit 732 and these individuals were allowed to operate in an environment that eventually morphed into what we see today the modern instantiation post 9-11 but prior to that there was a very very long history of gain of function experimentation that was done in terms of literally bio warfare now they tried to make the argument that they stopped any offensive bio warfare research in 1969 and that was kissinger and nixon and essentially they went and just um changed everything to defensive and the work carried on in a program called the special virus cancer program and it's likely from this program that um hiv emerged and i don't think it's an accident that we see a lot of crossover between the emergence of the SARS viruses and the um, epitopes of concern. That Luc Montagnier, had he not stood up and, and put his head on the chopping block, literally, to say, this looks synthetic. We, I, I don't think we would be in the position we are right now where we're having these discussions. And like I say, the, the people need to understand that this has been a um, vicious attack against them using this next generation technology. And I'll add this little caveat to that, that what the excuse that they use for these research programs is it it's, exists in a legal gray zone of something called incapacitation agents. Now, the case fatality rate of COVID is, you know, it's a little higher than flu. It's age stratified. 
But one thing we do know is that it has this neurological component that impacts people that last from months to years. And at the, at the core of that is, are these pre-energic protein misfolding mechanisms. And I'm, I will stand here and under all my professional experience and say they've realized that these prion-like disorders can be induced by engineering peptides that can be transmissible or you really want to increase uh, your bang for the buck you combine it in a binary component with gene transfection and i think that's what we're seeing and that's what's driving the excess death and these people must <clears throat> be held to account i you know i'm going to make a, a couple of comments um going back to the remdesivir you know hospitals receive more money so it's easy for them to like say hey let's use it and dr fleming made a, a comment on you know the the data is hard to find but i think sometimes that you know you have to look at the data like what's in the bank accounts of the hospitals mm -hmm. and these mm -hmm. doctors and pfizer and Moderna, I mean, the, the, the bank accounts where it li lined their pockets and created all these billionaires. That's where mm -hmm. the date is. That's why they keep going what it is. They don't want to <clears> stop. <throat> They're making gazillions of dollars. Anyway, mm -hmm. so Kevin, do you think that um, you can reverse prion disease? No, oh, it's very... <laughs> Look, maybe if you're active enough and early enough in the prion cascade that the body the body has a natural capacity to deal with misfolded proteins often lysosomal degradation and it'll get chewed up and um and so if you can get on top of it quickly that potentially you you might be okay particularly if you're in a younger demographic if, however, there is, you already had a predisposition, you were prodromal for these neurological, uh, neurodegenerative disorders, that's a very, very different undertaking. And the simple fact is, we don't have good treatments available. What I'm concerned about is that we're seeing the same individuals touting the same technology to treat these protein misfolding disorders and i don't think that there's the clinical evidence it's certainly not being present in the literature with the use of um amyloid busting drugs and um anti-inflammatories um we, we we know that we can block and remove those or, or slow down those processes but the disease still continues and so that tells you that there are other mechanisms at play. And so people have to think beyond the canonical proteins that we associate with these diseases. So whether it's amyloid, alpha-synuclein, uh, phosphorylated tau, um, I, I would wager, and this is where the literature is heading at the moment, and this is the sort of bleeding edge, is that there is fallout across a whole range of peptides that we're not even cognizant of because perhaps they don't aggregate in into things like Lewy bodies. 
okay? And once this process has started, I think it's very, very difficult to get it under control. And I would wager that they've looked at this mechanism, said that, wow, it's not, a, it's generally not an immediate death. It's a long-term incapacitation agent that leverages neuro and somatic degenerative properties. And yeah, I wish I, I wish I had something to say that, um, you know, I know people talk a lot about natokinase now and um, the the bioflavonoids, etc. You know, I, I I'm a proponent of find something that you think is working for you, and stick with it. Try to avoid the behaviours that you know you shouldn't be doing, and give your body the best chance that um, you can possibly give it. But if you're if you're in a situation where Again, like prodromal, it it makes no logical, medical, scientific sense to me that you would gene transfect peptides that are amyloidogenic in individuals who are already having a disease burden. And I have no idea how that passed any regulatory bodies. I can't believe there wasn't a neuroscientist, a neurologist, a cardiologist who understands and works with those disease mechanisms, s putting their hand up and saying, hey, shouldn't, shouldn't we be um, removing these epitopes of concern? And they didn't do it. They kept the whole thing. And not only have they kept the whole thing, but as they've tried to modify, um, particularly the gene transfections, they're keeping the peptide, the most potent peptide of concern, which was the original Wuhan strain. And, you know, the, again, I would, I would point to excess deaths. And the problem is we don't have the ability to get in there, or we need people to be foyering the information as to why these people were suddenly, we're suddenly losing them. And why isn't the, the proper investigation being done? And maybe this is something that Richard can speak to, which is, um, <clears throat> one of my phones is, uh, it's, it's shut down. Um, the, in, when, when the person, um, is lost, right? Um, unless you're specifically looking for these protein misfolding disorders, you're likely to miss it. And, you know, the areas of concern obviously would be cardiac and, you know, post-mortem, what, what should be done and how easy would it be to miss the cardiac amyloidosis? And I think that's sort of Richard's um, domain. So I'm gonna to defer to the expert there. Um, but what should they be doing in the autopsies right now to uh, either dismiss or confirm this potential hypothesis? Okay, and as a follow-up, sorry, in response to what they should be doing, they're going to have to stain, Congo Red is the typical uh, staining procedure looking for amyloid in in. Uh, uh, in amyloidosis of the heart, and they should be doing that. Every one of these people, but if they don't stain for Congo Red or, or something to look for the amyloid, 
they're not going to see it. They're not going to know that it's there. So you have to know what you're looking for and then staying for that. that and that's true. It's going to be true for neurologic. It's going to be true for pancreatic. It's going to be true for the heart. I mean, that's how we've, we've seen these originally. So if you don't stain for the right stuff, you could do an autopsy. You'll never and see it's, it. It's, it's mm-hmm. the, the basic problem here. It's just it's not um, visually detectable as you look at the organ. Right. This is this is the problem no. that we're facing right now. Yeah. Yeah. You have to know you have to stain for the right materials and then and look at it microscopically to see it. Now, when people have long term amyloid uh, and you have a restrictive cardiomyopathy, you'll see pressure wave tracings in the in the cath lab or with a swan gans catheter. And you'll see uh, restrictive movements on the echocardiogram, uh, diastolic dysfunction. But again, that could be due to a lot of things. So until you actually stain that tissue and look for it, or you can do a PYP study if you're looking for it and the person's alive, you can find it. But if you don't look for it, you don't do PYP and you use a different tracer, you're not going to see amyloid. You have to know what to look for and you have to look for it. Mm. Yeah. Sorry for the interruption on that. That's okay. Um, Kevin, I have one last question for you. And then I have a a question for Dr. Fleming followed by a comment. Um, So uh, the areas of the brain, um, what do you feel or what are you seeing are impacted the most by the shot? Like the basal ganglia that's, you know, regulates fight flight, the executive function of the prefrontal cortex the deep limbic, which regulates negative, sad, and I don't like to use the word depressed, but overwhelming feelings, the temporal lobes, um, which regulate the anger, or all of the above? Um, I think it's a case of all of the above. There have been some interesting papers uh, recently, uh, one which has found that there's a aggregation of viral proteins in this instance um, around the substantia nigra pars compactor which is the um, source of your dopamine um, for the brain and much of the nervous and peripheral nervous system and these these neurons are incredibly sensitive and the problem is that in what's termed idiopathic Parkinson's disease. You don't know, we've become more sophisticated in the last decade or so, but it wasn't until the symptoms presented motorically, so you started to develop the overt symptoms of Parkinson's. And that phase transition occurs at around 70 to 80% loss of these dopaminergic neurons. And so the the patients can appear essentially normal. And what these studies are showing is that um, viral amyloidogenic peptides are getting into the midbrain and attacking these dopaminergic neurons. Another recent paper has come out that shown that um, the spike itself is able to... um, be stored as a reservoir within the skull marrow and there are literal uh, tribucles that attach the bone marrow of the skull and the brain tissue itself 
and they've shown that th this is a conduit for spike protein into the brain. And again, these are these are new findings. This is something that, that again that's at the cutting edge, and to me, would well, I believe should be argument and evidence to be saying we need to be incredibly careful about how we approach dealing with the spike protein, whether it comes from the virus, whether it comes from gene transfection, and just to hammer home the point around um, these peptides, we know that in terms of the, the, the disease itself, the virus, it, we can take that as a given. It's a property. It's a property of the complex nature of the virus and, again, probably a boosting of its um, more aggressive components through recombinant genetic engineering. The other issue is that in gene transfection, we know that there are exosomes, for want of a better expression, that are being dispersed into circulation for weeks after exposure to the vaccine shots. And these exosomes, <clears throat> because of the nature of the spike protein itself, are studded with these amyloidogenic peptides. Now, you can read the literature and it's it's Orwellian in its interpretation that they think that that's a good thing. When they were telling people at the beginning of the vaccine rollouts, it stays at the site of, of injection, goes to the lymph node and gets um, taken out in the liver. And no, that's not what's happening. What's happening is you're getting cleaved spike protein being blebbed off in exosomes and those exosomes are capable of traveling all around the body to all major organ systems and capable of initiating these amyloidogenic cascades. Mm -hmm. And again, I would hammer home the point. We must be investigating why we have such excess death, lost lives that they're saying are not COVID related. But we need to go in, as Richard said, the stains need to be done. The tissue analysis needs to be done at, at a very, very fine detail to find out if amyloidosis is taking out innocent civilians in as a consequence of military, biowarfare, medical, medical countermeasure programs that have run amok. Thank you. Now, Dr. Fleming, um, in the next 15 minutes that we have left, I am, I'm going to ask a couple of questions, answer it how um, you like, and then we'll wrap up. Um, I'd like to know more about um, the 10 letters. Could you just excuse me, Laurie? Sure. Uh, they're, they're repairing my roof, and I think he's yes. knocking on the door right now. So okay. just give me a second. I'll be back. Okay. Okay. So should we wait for him? Yeah, let me wait for him. You can, but uh, just and follow up to something he was saying. When Luke and I were talking early on about why the proteus inhibitors were causing a problem with HIV and the people we had treated, and then when they stopped, they would get worse. What was being seen electron microscopically is that the glycoprotein 120 component, which we know is in this spike protein, those are being cleaved off 
from the spike protein, and they were going out by themselves, causing more damage than the entire virus was by itself. So Kevin's point is a very important point, and it had to do with what Luke and I were talking about with the vaccines and the people being infected, which is anything that causes a denuding or a, a opening up of that glycoprotein 120 component of the spike protein, which is there, is going to cause more harm than the original virus did by itself. The genetic vaccines allowed the perpetuation of the production of these spike proteins over a long period of time and the proteins that are being made are, are not the complete spike protein. They are parts and parcels of spike protein with the most critical GP120 and other pyogenic components there. That speaks to the point you asked me about earlier with these genetic vaccines. Luke's concern, my concern, is that what's going on is perpetuation of this GP120 constantly being made from the genetic vaccines being disseminated in the same way or the use of Paxlovid causes the same thing with the viral infection and the splicing off of these, these GP120 components causing the same harm that we saw with HIV, except we're seeing it with the SARS-CoV-2. Longer term, impaired immunity, neurologic symptoms, and now we're making it as opposed to dealing with the virus coming person to person. <clears throat> Thank you for clarifying that. So Dr. Fleming, obviously there are some of the more well-known doctors that have been talking about SARS-CoV-2 for almost four years. There are very few doctors talking about the gain of function crime. And, and personally, the only two that I know are you and Dr. David Martin. As a lay person, I find it hard to believe since it is the gain of function that is the crime that will lock these criminals up. I'm gonna add to that, that I love the work that Dr. Pierre Corey is doing because I think we need to be educating on other medications that other people believe work. I know that when I got COVID, I personally took ivermectin, um, I was fine. So I'm just gonna put that out there. But with that said, how do we get people, how do we get these doctors like Dr. Peter McCullough, who is very well known, Dr. Ryan Cole, Dr. Mor Malone, collaborating with you, You've got decades of research and over 8,500 documents that you would think that someone like a world-renowned like cardiovascular doctor like, like McCullough would wanna know. So how do we get them collaborating with you? And I'm gonna add the follow-up question just in case we run out of time. Do you also think that, that, that these talk show hosts like Del Bigtree with the high wire Mike Adams, the Health Ranger, Alex Jones with the Infowar, Glenn Beck and Tucker Carlson would also want to hear about your extensive research. 
what do we do? What do we need to do to make this happen? Do we need to call them out? Well, I think, you know, that, that is one of the, one of the things that, that needs to be done, which is to say, what, what's your motivation for doing what you're doing? Um, are you interested in the fact that we have real criminals in the U.S. military system and government and other systems around the world that have been placing Americans and people around the world at risk? Are you, are you interested in stopping that? Or are you interested in promoting a book or a tour or your website or whatever? You know, my Hippocratic oath is what I took when I graduated from medical college. And I took those words very seriously. Now, they really only apply to two groups of people. My patients that I accept and the people who trained me out of respect for them. But I've taken that Hippocratic Oath, in my case, the Geneva Oath, and extended it to the people around the world. Because for the dignity and, and self-respect that I have, for respect for my parents, for the people who raised me, for the people who trained me, it's my obligation to step outside of myself, outside of my comfort zone, and call out the people that aren't doing the same thing and demand that they work together with us to expose these criminals. After we expose them for the crimes of the gain of function, then everybody can go have at the pieces that they want. But they have a duty and obligation. If they're going to get out there and tell people they care about them, I think it's time that they actually show that they care about them. Don't Ask the people to come to your defense because you're having trouble. There's nothing about anything I've done where I've said, please come help Dr. Fleming. And I know Dr. McCarran hasn't done this or any of the other people. I, I'm not asking anybody to come help me. Okay. I've had all sorts of fun dealing with these fights and these battles. And I accept those, those battles because it's the only thing I can do honorably for the people who raised me and the people that I'm raising and for the people that I consider friends and for what I consider the value of science and medicine to be. Step up, and I hate to use these phrases because it just sounds stupid, but step up and be a man or be a woman or whatever it is that you are, and you're only one or the other, guys, um, and, and come forward and and do the right thing for the American people. Put your ego aside long enough. Put your self-interest aside long enough. And pretend that you want to make a difference in humanity. Because the other side, if we want to use these types of terms, is certainly doing it for them and the people that they care about. Who's speaking up for the 1.1 million dead Americans? Who's speaking up for the 1.5 maimed Americans? Who's speaking up for the 8.8 .8 million dead people on the planet? If not the people that are alive, that are capable of fighting, who stepped up when we were trying to find, bring this country into existence against the atrocities of, of the King of England and the other people that were attacking? It was the people who stepped forward, who made the difference, that gave us everything we have. Who, who now in our generation is going to step forward to preserve the health, 
and the dignity and the welfare of the people, if not the people that are here now. So if you're out there with a voice and people are listening to you and you're not talking about this gain of function crime, then you have abandoned your duty and your obligation as far as I'm concerned, morally and ethically. You have an obligation to step forward and, and, and go after the criminals for these criminal actions so that we can put this to bed so they do not continue to do the things that Dr. McCurran and I and you have talked about as they continue to push forward this agenda for what they want. If you are out there and you are being recognized and you are not standing up here on this battlefield, on this front line, then don't pretend you're a frontline doctor or you're frontline anything because you have abandoned the people that are looking to you for answers and hope. Step up, do your job, join us. I welcome it. Listen, Michael Jordan had a great team. I don't think he was best friends with all of his team players. So I'll put this out there that listen, people are starting to die on their watches. We the, the what's going to put an end to this is stopping the research on the gain of function because they're not stopping with SARS or COVID-19. They're going to keep going and they're going to keep going and, and, and until they get us all. But with that said, because I'm running out of time, can you tell me and the audience what 10letters.org is all about and what you and Kevin um, are doing to get that grassroots movement out there. Right. So 10letters.org, the number 10 followed by the word L-E-T-T-E-R-S.org, no spaces, is a website that Americans can go on to. And you go to the bottom, it says, build my letter. You know, pull up a page, it'll ask for your name and your address. That's so the cover letter that's made goes to your attorney general and your governor instead of mine. Now, there's a box to click that says, don't show my name. So if you don't want somebody to know, click that box. Although I would argue at this point in time, they probably know who all we, we are and, and they should. I want them to know who I, that I'm doing this because I'm doing what I consider right. So you can click that box, but it will make a cover letter to your governor and your attorney general. You can download them and print them. Then go to the top to the indictment letter print up two copies of that. It's got my name. It's got Dr. McCarran's name. It's got Mr. Rixey's name. It's got Dr. Dinard's name. It's got Dr. Huff's name on it. Where we're calling these people out for the crimes they've committed. Print two of those up. Put one in the envelope for your governor, one in the envelope for your AG, and send it in. There's over 9,400, 9,500 letters in right now. Um, it is a direct message to the attorney generals and the governors that there's enough evidence for indictment. It has links. Now, what we're doing now, Dr. McCarran, myself, Dr. Uh, uh, Huff, Dinert, and Mr. Rixey, is we have put the information together. We are going to provide to each attorney general, each senator, and each person on the Senate Select Subcommittee the book that I wrote, is COVID-19, a bioweapon, the a USB drive with more than 8,500 items on it, substantiating the crimes and, and doing the work for the AGs, not expecting them to go get a science degree or a medical degree. They went into law. They're prosecuting attorneys. They're the only ones who can actually file criminal indictments. That are affidavits 
and the DVD that I did of, of my deposition under oath addressing all of this. We're providing that to every AG, every senator, everybody on the subcommittee. Then I am personally going around and meeting with DAs and AGs, answering questions, laying it out for them. These, these files are, are put out so you can find documents by our name, by our affidavits, by the year in which something was published. The documents are going to be there. They can't wipe them from the internet because we've got them. So go ahead, wipe them if you want to. It shows how desperate you are. But we're going after these guys. Fauci, Collins, the rest of Gates, the rest of these, the people, the nine or 10 that we know that we've got the data on, that we want these prosecuting attorneys to take the evidence to a real grand jury and say, ladies and gentlemen, I've got this evidence. Will you give me an indictment? And the moment that first indictment hits, there's half dozen, 10 AGs that are very interested in this. And they will undoubtedly go together to file joint suits and they will call for Fauci and the others to notify them that they are going to, to be part of a criminal prosecution for murder, for attempted murder, for manslaughter, for reckless manslaughter, for assault, for battery, for false imprisonment, for coercion, and for perjury. For the love of God, Anthony Fauci sat at Congress and told Senator Dr. Rand Paul, NIAID did not fund gain-of-function research. If I'm in the room, Dr. Fauci, and we get to the Senate subcommittee and we're giving testimony, and you have the audacity to come in as a witness and say that you did not fund gain-of-function research, I will at that point in time place you under citizen's arrest because a U.S. citizen has a right and an obligation that when a felony is committed in front of them to arrest that person and place them in custody. I will put him under citizen arrest. I want the Senate Select Subcommittee to, to call him out, I want real grand juries. I want these people indicted. These people indicted. I want them at least put in prison. I want the gain of function and the attached CRISPR technology stopped. I want the genetic vaccine stopped. I want all their plans put on permanent stop. Then we can go back and deal with the problems that our universities and our healthcare system and, and everything has. Citizens should not be afraid to come and see their medical doctors like me. And I'm embarrassed to be living in a time when I lived when HIV came through and we did not abandon our patients. And the abandonment of patients and the abandonment and hijacking of science has got to stop. And the only way to do it is to hold these criminals accountable and put them behind bars at a minimum. And the death penalty is not off the list. So there we have it. So we'll challenge Texas, Kentucky, Rand Paul State, and DeSantis, Florida. Who's going to be the first bravest one to stand up? And then which doctor, McCullough, Malone, Cole, who's going to be the next one to stand up and join 10 Letters? Kevin, thank you very much for answering uh, the questions that we have. Dr. Fleming, once again, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Um, Sorry, I, I might I might just leverage in just a quick um, a quick sentence perfect. or two. Okay. Um, 
What what Richard was talking about there, I want to emphasize, is deadly serious. Look at the trajectory that we're on. These programs are intimately linked with the current war that's erupting around the planet. And we're on a <clears throat> precipice unless we pull it back. This is literal life or death at the moment and where our societies and civilizations are going people need to need to step up in this regard and i know vaccines are a uh you know emotive issue for people and they want to get around that or, or, or gather around that but it's this bigger bio warfare medical countermeasures business that needs tackling because if we don't we'll just get it again and again and again and I'll, I'll stop that thank thank you for that because it's not about the vaccine or the shot it's about the gain of function so have the courage to stand, go to 10letters.org, tune in to Dr. McCarran, tune in to Dr. Fleming. And for now, thank you here, Kevin from the United States, and we'll chat with y'all later. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Recording stop. All right. Um, there we go. Uh, right. Um, I'm supposed to be uh, speaking with Charles and um, we want to look at his data. Um, I might just check on his status, uh, whether we do it today or tomorrow. But um, sorry, I didn't um, give more notice to the stream. It was I got back from uh, kids. Uh, school run etc and I had to just uh, rock and roll maybe I should have set it up last night that I had everything but um, thank you for listening uh, thank you to Onando for the dono uh, let me just see if anyone else sent one um... no uh, so just Onando you are all you know what you are all right uh, again thank you I'll be streaming soon with uh, Charles um, either either in an, an hour or two or maybe tomorrow and uh yeah i'm out of here take care god bless i will see you in the next one bro you don't know how angry i am you do i'm like i was just leaving for fucking work you do not understand how fucking pissed off after reading that little line i will be arrested for not taking a fucking vaccine fuck these papers I will fucking kill each fucking kappa, I swear! <laughs> this is not a fucking joke anymore. This is fucking dead serious. I am fucking dead serious. These people don't know who the fuck they're actually playing with. Fuck these kappas. No fucking vaccine or MRA will ever flow through my fucking blood blood. Never! I will fucking die fucking fighting for my fucking bees and my fucking forefathers and my fucking lineage. Fuck these motherfuckers! All them five. I like this guy. September forty-five thousand. Let up! 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 Let up!